So we were wondering what was going to happen with this story. And there we have it. James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, confirming the news that China has removed six officials from Britain, two months after violence at its consular in Manchester. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. I'm Daryl Morris and Yoshi Herman is the Mill's editor and joins us. Yoshi, hello there, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing, Daryl? Yes, I'm very good, sir. Very, very good. We'll get into this story about the diplomats being removed after that incident at the Chinese consulate that we talked about a few weeks ago, didn't we? We've, we've had our eye on this and been wondering whether or not there would be a move from government on that. We'll also talk a little bit about train strikes as well. And you've been talking a lot this weekend, uh, Yoshi, about power. Who has the power in Britain. Firstly, you left the country this weekend, didn't you? And spent some time in Munich, is that right? You were in Munich? I was in Munich for a bit, which is where my mum's from originally. And then I was in Lower Bavaria, which is like a sort of rural bit, kind of on the Austrian border, really. And it was where my grandmother lives, uh, my, my German Bavarian grandmother. And it was the first time I've seen her for about 15 years because my mum hasn't been, you know, you know, close to her for quite a while. And also, obviously, I went to Christmas markets because that's what they have in Munich. And I had, had, had occasion to compare them to Manchester's Christmas markets. How do you think that comparison <laughs> went down? <laughs> What's your review? What's your take? Look, I think we've got a lot to learn. Apparently, actually, the Birmingham Christmas markets are really good. Someone, someone in the MEN was writing about that. But yeah, the, the Munich ones are like absolutely incredible. What really struck me is that a lot of the stalls seem very kind of individual, like very interesting crafts and arts and kind of hand sculpted little wooden decorations and amazing like stars that hang off your tree. It just felt very beautiful and very high quality. I think maybe maybe we could benefit from a few trips out to Munich. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, we can make that happen, I'm sure. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's get into this week's episode then. And a significant piece of news that's landed today, Yoshi, and that is the the news that China has removed six officials from Britain, including one of its most senior diplomats, two months after the violence that we were talking about at the Manchester consulate at its consulate in Manchester. What do we know so far? Yeah, we don't know that much because we're recording this episode a couple of hours after this news is broken or maybe an hour later. But the news is that the Consul General, who is the individual who we were talking about in past episodes, who was involved in this violent incident at the consulate, he has been removed from the country. And five of the officials um, at the consulate have also been removed and this is after this pro-Hong Kong democracy protester activist was seemingly beaten up um, just inside the gate. So people will remember these videos showing a, a protester being dragged inside the gates and being beaten, punches flying, that kind of thing, while the consul general watched on. And it caused a, you know, a lot of anger. It caused a lot of dismay that a, a foreign regime like this could treat protesters you know, in Manchester like that. The foreign secretary, James Cleverly, says that the the Foreign Office gave the Chinese government essentially a week. Um, they gave them a deadline of the 14th of December, which is you know the day we're recording this podcast, and that the Chinese government chose to remove those officials you know in, in accordance with that deadline. Basically, I think what, what what happened here was that the officials were going to have their diplomatic immunity waived so that they could be questioned by British police. 
So there was this deadline, just to get this right, I believe the deadline was not for for, for them to necessarily leave the country, but to have their diplomatic immunity waived so they could be questioned by police. But that is effectively like saying leave the country, because no country wants its foreign diplomats to be sort of involved in a a police investigation. And and we've done updates on this police investigation from GMP. They say they're trying to go where the evidence leads, and then they're not going to be held back by um, sensitivities and that kind of thing. There's an interesting quote from James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, he said, when China behaves in a way that we fundamentally disagree with, we raise it directly with China, you know, which feels like a kind of, obviously a good message to hear, but also the kind of message that the China hawks, as they're known in the, on the Tory backbenches, would, would really want to hear. He said as well, in response to our request, the Chinese government have now removed from the UK those officials, including the Consul General himself. This demonstrates that our adherence to the rule of law, the seriousness with which we take these incidents, has had an effect and we will continue on the world stage and domestically to abide by the rule of law and we expect others to do likewise. So quite a big moment, I think, for the for the government here, for the British government, to get China to remove these these officials. Mm. And, and we were debating, weren't we, whether or not there would be action on this and the, the sort of geopolitical sensitivities around it, Yoshi, whether this is something that would quietly go away or whether there would be firmer action. And here we have our answer. I think it was going to be difficult for it to go away because the police had been so open from the beginning that they had opened an investigation. So it would have been difficult to wrap that up without questions being asked, well, did you ever get access to these these officials? Were discussions had about waiving their immunity? You know, could they have been made persona non grata, which was one of the, the routes that, that could have been pursued? So, yeah, I, I think we definitely were wondering. And I think, to be honest, it's just good to see that that kind of behaviour from a foreign government is, if not punished, because, you know, these people aren't actually being punished in our legal system, at least some action has been taken. Like, it's not just that you can just get away with this kind of thing. I think it would have sent a terrible message if people had just been, foreign officials had been able to get away with the kind of thing we saw in those videos. And, and let's just consider for a moment that this is Greater Manchester Police that we're talking about who've who've led this inquiry, right? Who've led these investigations. This is a, a police force that were in special measures up until relatively recently, who've had a new chief and find themselves at the heart of this enormous, you know, geopolitical, international, very tense, very delicate issue. I mean, you could imagine, you know, we consider so much about Greater Manchester Police and, and their fortunes and and their um, some of their failings in, in recent years to to tackle the most benign of crimes to suddenly be in, in the centre of this story. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the leadership of GMP were very, very keen to show, you know, like they are with lots of other things at the moment, to show that they're on the front foot, that they're doing everything they can to investigate, that the era of, oh, GMP just lets things slide or doesn't record crimes or, or doesn't investigate is over. So I think it might be part of that as well. But ultimately, this had to come down to government pressure. It wouldn't have been the mayor of Greater Manchester who could do this or the police. It would have been the government who would have had to say to Chinese officials, look, you know, this wasn't acceptable and, and we are going to let this police investigation take its take its course. And yeah, remarkable, really. I mean, you know, remarkable that those those officials are now not in the country. Okay. Elsewhere, Yoshi, we need to talk about trains, my friend. Uh, we are recording this on a Wednesday. There is a train strike today. Uh, you'll be hearing this in your podcast feed on Thursday, which is sort of, what would you call it? Like a day off, I suppose, <laughs> from the train strike <laughs> yeah. before, they, before they begin again on, on, on Wednesday and then uh, into the weekend on Saturday. And, oh, I mean, there's a whole a whole stack of things to mention here. I mean, you know, we, we, we've, we've talked a lot, haven't we, Yoshi, about, about uh, train transport across the north. And uh, we find ourselves at deadlock, really. 
Yeah, I mean, it just seems to be getting worse every day. Obviously, there are different things going on here. You've got the strikes, which are very, very serious and regular at the moment. You've got the weather, which has also caused disruption. Plus, you've just got the fundamental incompetence and underperformance of the operators who run some of the rail lines in the north, right? It can be difficult to separate out those three factors this week, but there's no doubt that there are just a lot of strikes going on. So, for example, I'm looking at the Avanti West Coast uh, website here. Thursday the 15th, it says, you know, trains will get going later because because of the strikes on the day before. Friday, 16th, it says, strike, only travel if necessary. Saturday, strike, only travel if necessary. Sunday, later start up, check before you travel. And then they say on Monday, normal but busy service expected. So it's just, yeah, people have said it's like an advent calendar full of kind of different strikes we've got at the moment. And if you listen to some of the interviews the RMT boss Mick Lynch has been giving on the, on the radio and on the TV, it doesn't particularly sound to me like they're about to resolve this in time to, for example, cancel the Friday and Saturday strikes. I don't know. Have I, have I read that right? Yeah, I think that's very, very right. Yeah, I think. I mean, of course, he's he's blamed the government and the government have blamed him, but they are at a stalemate and there doesn't seem like there's any way through at all uh, for them at the moment. And and I guess you know it's quite interesting because because the sort of the, I mean, there's there's lots that we can talk about here, but the, the way in which this story has been covered has in itself become quite an interesting talking point, hasn't it? Yeah. So Mick Lynch, who heads up the RMT, he gave a pretty bad tempered interview to Radio 4's Today program this week, in which he basically accused the BBC of parroting the talking points of the more right-wing newspapers like The Sun and The Mail, saying, you only ever talk about how much money um, the striking workers have lost because of their strikes. You don't talk about, uh, you know, the fat cats, and, and you don't talk about how the establishment is against our members and that kind of thing. It was a pretty, I mean, people should go and have a listen. It was pretty... You know, he wasn't in a particularly good mood. And I, I think generally Mick Lynch is really, really good at media, right? He's become a bit of a celebrity for very, very skillfully batting away some of the the less intelligent questions that he gets from journalists. But I think in this occasion, he didn't really sound like he was on top of his brief. And he didn't sound like he was willing to answer the question about how much his his workers, have, his members have lost in pay. And I think, you know, I'm sure he's got a point that it, it must feel like the entire media is against you when you're you know, a left-wing union giving a strike because we don't have a, you know, I, the way our media is, I think, you know, it, it must feel like you you are being confronted by a lot of hostility. On the other hand, I think it's really, really clear when someone's not answering a question and it was in that interview. And I think his skill with the media, which has won him a lot of plaudits, I think including from us, I think, that, you know, that's slightly slipped this week, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? Also, the the other thing that for, for us to consider is is uh, and we, we, we touched on it just slightly br- just briefly there, but but the issue with Avanti, which is obviously much more relevant to us, that's the the, the, the network that connects Manchester and London, the West Coast Main Line, a train that I would be taking. I should have I should have taken today, and I should have taken yesterday, and I should be taking it the weekend. But I'm not. I'm doing my radio shows from up here, and I've missed a various various appointments and stuff, etc., because of the strikes, but also because of some poor service. Andy Burnham, Andy Street, and Sadiq Khan, which is, a, in a sense, a slightly unlikely coming together because Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan are on a, in a different political place than, than Andy Street is, obviously. But they have come together, Yoshi, to basically demand that unless Avanti get their act together by the end of this year, then they should be stripped of their franchise. That's quite soon. Yeah, and they were quite specific. They were they were talking about, I think they were saying like three, three services per hour minimum or, or something like that. Um, they were quite specific about what they want. And 
In a sense, I think the Avanti stuff makes sense, right? Because it's such a key artery between Manchester and London. So it makes sense for us in Manchester to really care about that. But what some readers say to me is, it shouldn't just be the focus on Avanti because the Trans-Pennine stuff has been really, really awful. Loads and loads of cancellations. Helen Peard in The Guardian's done loads of good reporting on that. And a lot of those problems were cropping up on sort of uh, the, some of the more regional lines that serve important communities, but which, you know, don't go to London and therefore weren't getting some of the same publicity. So, you know, I get the Avanti service regularly. I mean, I was on a train recently on Avanti down to London. It was people were standing up for the entire thing. I mean, I wasn't, but I got lucky. Like people were standing up all the way to London, which is pretty crazy. There's a good book out at the moment by an academic um, called Tom Haynes Doran. He's a he's a researcher at the um Actually, I don't know which university he's at, but he has written a book for Manchester University Press, and he has written about basically how rail privatization has gone wrong, like why it doesn't work, why it's so dysfunctional, why the Northern timetables haven't worked. And why John Major's government sort of designed the system completely wrongly in the 90s. I really recommend giving that a read because I've read it recently and I've sort of learned a lot about how the how the, how the system is structured and, and why a lot of these problems come about. And I'd say, I think the big thing I took away from this before we move on to the next topic, the big thing I took away was we've created a system where all the operators can do is compete with each other on cost. That's all they can do when they're trying to get a franchise. They, so they pitch to the government by saying, we can save a bit more money here. We can save a bit more money there. So there's been a race to the bottom on cost. And that has meant that service and reliability and lots of other things, the quality that we get from these rail services has been eroded and eroded and eroded, even while prices go up. All they're doing is about, we, we can do it with fewer people. We can do it with fewer staff, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, I think, a big reason why this franchising system hasn't worked for us. Okay, very interesting. Well, intrinsically linked to those stories, uh, Yoshi, the other two that we're going to consider are a new Centre for Cities report that highlights Manchester and a couple of other cities kind of becoming a, a cluster for innovative new businesses to trade, but also further consideration that you've been making, Yoshi, into the, the report that we saw from Gordon Brown last week when he was talking about the Constitution, right, and, and, and where power and opportunity, but namely power in the, the case of Gordon Brown, lies link all those together for us yoshi un, un, let's open your head dump your head out onto this podcast what are you thinking <laughs> so i wrote this i wrote this four thousand words sort of essay over the weekend about devolution and i think you know some people would have read that and we talked about it on the on the episode last week but to pull all those things together labor has clearly come to the sort of conclusion that the conservatives did with leveling up which is that like there's this big regional problem and it would be popular to solve it, and it would be really good for the economy if we solved it. I mean, I described it in my piece as kind of the big issue, the big one. Like, if we, could, it, you can't really get a high growth economy that, that you know pulls up people's living standards if you have a large proportion of the country underperforming economically, and that's what Gordon Brown's talking about. And I think to, to bring in the innovation stuff. You know, people like Mike Emmerich at, at Metro Dynamics, who I quoted in that piece, who's a former government advisor who now runs this very sought-after consultancy. He's always banging on about innovation. Like I went to a, a, a you know a dinner that he held with a bunch of um, people who are much more important and, and older than me, and, and and more credentialed than me, and they're all they're all talking about innovation because the idea is if you can if you can increase business investment if you can get businesses to really invest in innovative technologies innovative ideas using data better you can create a lot more value for for your for your investment you can create a lot more 
high paying jobs in the economy and these clusters of sort of knowledge economy companies. So to bring in this new Centre for Cities report, they talk about this cluster in the city centre in Greater Manchester. They say 14.7% of Greater Manchester's new economy firms are registered in this little cluster, despite the centre accounting for just, you know, in the city centre, despite the centre accounting for just 0.2% of land. So there are other clusters in Salford Quays, in Altrincham and Bolton. And the report found that like suburban business and science parks are, are also attractive to these kind of businesses. You know, there's uh, we, we've talked before about Atom Valley and, and what they're trying to do up in the in, in in the north of Greater Manchester. Bev Craig from the council said this report sort of recognises the enormous potential for innovation-led growth in the UK's regional cities. I think look, a lot of American cities look to Silicon Valley and they wonder how can we get the kind of technological innovation that they've had in Silicon Valley because it will create loads of jobs and it'll create a lot more wealth for our, for, for the people who live in, in each city. A lot of American cities are trying to figure that out. I think the British cities are kind of doing a, a different thing. They're looking at London and saying, look at the service sectors that they've got. Look at the finance sectors. How could we have a bit of that? I think what this innovation stuff is about is saying, don't just think about what London's got. Try and think about you know Silicon Valley. Try and think about Germany. Try and think about countries where economic growth and prosperity have been driven by really innovative new ideas. It's funny because when I read about this stuff, I always think, God, it gets quite boring. It gets quite dull. But the importance of it is so is so clear. And I don't know, it almost feels like, Daryl, we should probably get someone on the podcast who really understands this stuff and who can tell us more about how this innovation works. But we know it's heavily linked to being close to you know leading universities we know it's partly about taking research and thinking that's done in universities and, and bringing it into the private sector and bringing it into charities and bringing it into like organizations and government. So there's an aspect of we need more investment here. There's an aspect of we need more working between the universities and the private sector. Um, and there's an aspect of you have to really concentrate a lot of this innovation in these little clusters, um, as this report from the Centre of Cities talks about. So I think there's a lot going on with this topic. Mm, very much so. Uh, Yoshi's piece on that is really worth a read. On the the, the power bit of that is uh, is really worth a read from the weekend. You can find that still. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you can go. In fact, I don't think you have to be a subscriber to read that one, do you? Or do you? No, you do, do you? No, you don't. That's that's completely ah. free. That's a gift from us. A four thousand word gift from us to you for, for Christmas. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Uh, so go there to read that subscriber or otherwise. But then when you've read it, do subscribe because you get more brilliant quality journalism like that in your inbox. Manchesterbuild.co.uk is where you do that. Right. A couple of other quick hits that people need to know this week, Yoshi. And it's cold, extremely, extremely cold. And it is around this time of year that we see stories like those that we saw in Solihull over the weekend. That, of course, ending in tragedy. Fortunately, a similar-ish incident in Salford over the weekend didn't, but the council aren't happy. Yeah, Salford City Council have put out a statement saying, video footage has emerged of two men apparently drying off following an after-dark swim in freezing Salford Keys. I mean, these people must be completely out of their minds, right? After dark at the moment, swimming. I carry on. The footage shot by a member of the public around 7pm last night, uh, Sunday the 11th of December, when temperatures had dropped below freezing shows two young men in swimming trunks with towels on a pontoon close to the water sports village. One appears to be drying his hair. A counsellor has said, if these two young men are experienced cold water swimmers, then going into the quays in the dark by themselves on a freezing December night is utterly reckless. If they are not trained to swim in cold water, then they are lucky to be alive. So, yeah, I mean, who on earth would do that anyway? Hmm. 
Yeah, not crazy. Me. Not me. Nope, not me neither. There is a uh, there is a by election, uh, Yoshi. It's uh, it's going to be. I mean, literally, I think as we as we publish it is election day, uh, so people are going to the polls in Trafford. As you, by the time you hear this, you may have had a result already, and we haven't had a result, Yoshi. But we can have a strong sense of where it's going. Yeah, so this is going to go to Labour. It was it was a Labour seat already, and, and um, Kate Green stepping down as MP, um, Andrew Weston, who actually still is the, the the leader of the council in Trafford, he's going to get this seat for Labour. Um, it's going to be interesting, though. I think what we'll look at is what does the result look like? How strong for Labour? Have the Greens done well? How much has the Tory vote collapsed and that kind of thing? Because one of the big kind of interesting political stories I think about Greater Manchester in recent years is how Trafford has gone from being this Tory stronghold to to getting redder and redder and redder. And it will just be interesting to see from this result how red it's getting and whether that means that Sir Graham Brady, who's probably the most famous Tory backbench MP, you know, the, the chair of the 1922 committee. He's a he's clearly a, an MP in Trafford too, in a more Tory area, clearly. But if there was a big swing to Labour at the next election, he could lose his seat, which would be a massive story. And elsewhere, Yoshi, we are seeing uh, labour shortages across the economy, across the country. It seems to be one of the stories of our times. A hospital, though, in Greater Manchester kind of really sharpens the senses on this. A story about them paying an enormous amount of money for an agency doctor. What is this? Yeah, so there's a hospital that's paid £5,234 for a single shift for an agency doctor, which is, I think, the most egregious example of this. This is happening across the country a lot. NHS trusts are having to pay huge amounts of money to get locum doctors, to get agency staff, etc., etc. And this seems to be like the most, the craziest example. I was actually speaking to a consultant in, in a big Northwestern trust, not actually in Greater Manchester, and that person told me that there's almost like a bidding war. Like you, you, you're basically bidding to get locum staff to, this person was involved in A&E. And we're saying like, there's a system where you can only bid like higher amounts if you leave it to the last 10 hours or five hours or two days or whatever. So it's like, you can go higher and higher on the pay scale and offer these locums more and more, but only as the time gets closer. So you go into a shift not knowing how many people you're going to have and stuff. So it's a pretty stark illustration of like the health service issues we've got at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. A Northwest Ambulance Service also um, hit another sort of, you know, crisis point, didn't they, this week? You get these calls from the ambulance service once in a while, like only call if it's an emergency, et cetera, et cetera. But it was reported this week that at one point, 600 people were waiting um, for emergency vehicles in, in in the region, with hundred vehicles waiting to hand over patients at hospitals. So, yeah, it's um, it, if that's what's happening now, then you know I, I'm guessing as as the winter goes on, it I, potentially is going to be even worse. Okay, Yoshi, let's have a look at the big stories coming up. We are we're creeping towards Christmas now, my friend. Are you are you winding down in the mill newsroom now, or uh, still full steam ahead? We're kind of winding down. We've got lots of these books to send out. We've done doing this offer for North Country, this book that we really like, and we're, we've been sending it out to people who get annual memberships and people who buy gifts. We, we've got loads of those to send out. We've got some Christmas drinks on Thursday, which I'll see you at. And we've got a great story, actually, about uh, Strange Ways, which is still to come out this year, and I think it's going to come out over Christmas. So, no, this it's, it's weird. We are winding down, and yet we've still got, like, big stories that are taking up a lot of time and, and that we're really excited about. So I'm looking forward to Christmas. Um, and, and, and I think our final day in the office is going to be next Thursday, uh, the 22nd. Um, so yeah, it's a semi wind down, I suppose. 
Okay. Um, and we also like to give you some bits and bobs to do, don't we, around Greater Manchester. Uh, Yoshi, what have you got your eye on for the next uh, couple of days? Well, I think people can still book to go to the Royal Exchange show, the um, Maxine Peak. Um, they call it a semi-musical or a, a sort of musical. And it actually, to me, didn't look like a very promising Christmas show. It's like a, you know, it's a new show about Betty Boothroyd, who is the uh, leader of the House of Commons, sorry, speaker of the House of Commons. So I don't know, if that, it doesn't sound like a super promising Christmas concept, but um, apparently it's really, really good. Uh, Sophie Atkinson, who does all our cultural writing, she went and like wrote a review for Mill members this week and said it's like really, really fun really funny, really brilliant, yeah, like in, inventive and stuff. Um, so yeah, apparently that's well worth going to. And there are still tickets online. So that would be my rec for the weekend. Very nice. And I'm going to nod people towards Manchester Cathedral. Um, it's a bit of a tradition for uh, for me and my family that we go to the Manchester Cathedral Christmas carols toward the end of the year. Uh, the best one is, is, the, is the 22nd of December. They do the nine lessons you will famously have seen from King's College, Cambridge on the TV on Christmas Eve. So they do like a Manchester version uh, every year at the cathedral. So that'll be the 22nd of December at 6 30. I'm not quite sure if we're going to make it this year, actually, but um, if we do, we'll see you there. Um, That's it from us for this week. Don't forget to uh, like and subscribe to this podcast, and you'll get it in your podcast feed every week. Next week, we'll have a bit of a special. We'll be looking back at some of the big stories that have caught our eye from 2022, some of the best of the Mills journalism. And you can get some of the best of the Mills journalism in your inbox by subscribing. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go to do that. And also, by the way, what a great Christmas gift for somebody. Yeah. Gift somebody a subscription to the mill. What a How great about that? what a great gift. Give the gift of quality journalism and support <laughs> this great organization and that supports the podcast and all the rest of it. Exactly. Uh, manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to do that. We're back in your podcast feed this time next week. For now, thank you Yoshi. Thank you.